0: All right, we are starting chapter 7 today, and chap- we, we went just got through chapter 6. Chapter 6 was like a parenthesis in between chapter 5 and chapter 7. So he went kind of off on a tangent in chapter 6. So to figure out what he's talking about in chapter 7, you really have to back up just a little bit to Hebrews chapter 5, and I'm just going to summarize it for you. Because up to this point, the writer of Hebrews has been emphasizing how great the promises of God are and how huge our blessings are going to be if we hold on to the end, right? He acknowledges that we're weak in our humanity, and he assures us that Jesus understands our weaknesses. In fact, he says Jesus is constantly present before God, interceding for us. That means praying for us, praying for God to have mercy on us, um, praying for grace in our time of need and that function that praying for us is his job as our high priest that's what he does as high priest and in the beginning of chapter five the writer points out that our high priests have always been selected from men like us so they could understand our weaknesses and deal with us gently now he's talking about the priests under the Jewish law, right? He's talking about the Aaronic line or the the, Levi, the Levites, the Levitical line. And he also pointed out that the office of high priest was not an office that you could just go out and grab for yourself. It had to be ordained by God. You had to be the one that God picked, not the other way around. Jesus, he says, fulfills both those requirements. He was fully human. He suffered just like we suffer he was tempted just like we're tempted although he did not sin and he learned obedience just like we learn obedience as we're growing up and he was appointed our high priest by God and God said he was to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek and that's where chapter 5 ends and chapter 7 picks up so look at the first couple verses of chapter 7 this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Although there's some scholars who disagree with this, I agree with the general consensus, which seems to be that Melchizedek, when it says Melchizedek was king of Salem, that he was a real king over a real place. OK, some people don't don't believe that, but I think it means exactly what he says. He was a real king over a real place and that where the kingdom he was over included the ancient city of Jerusalem. And there are several reasons why this makes sense. And the fact that he is a real king over a real place, I think, is important to understanding the identity of Melchizedek. So the first thing we want to look at is the context of the story at the end of Genesis 14. Remember, Melchizedek was only mentioned in like two verses, and they were at the very end of Genesis 14. Melchizedek came out to meet Abram as Abram was returning from rescuing his nephew Lot. And Melchizedek brought bread and wine out as refreshment for Abram. So to me, that implies that Melchizedek didn't have to come far, right? since he was bringing refreshments to a traveler. So you have to figure he lived someplace near there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Secondly, it says, actually, in the Genesis account that they met in the Valley of Shevet, which is called the King's Valley. And there is a, one other place in the Bible that refers to this valley, and it's in 2 Samuel eighteen eighteen. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. For he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. And he named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Well, if you don't remember, Absalom was King David's son, and he lived all his life in the palace in Jerusalem. So presumably, I would think he would set this monument up somewhere where he could see it or go to it or pass by it as he went in and out of the city. Okay, I don't think he traveled 100 miles to set up his monument to himself. Okay, That didn't, doesn't fit with his personality, which was very self-centered. Um, so then I think that gives that verse lends support to the King's Valley being somewhere near Jerusalem. The next bit of geographic support, I think, would be the path that Abram would have taken. And if you have a map in your Bible, you can turn to that, any map of Palestine. But I brought one for you all to see. So if you can make heads or tails out of this, the, the little blue up there, that's the Sea of Galilee. Okay, and you've got the Jordan River running down to this big blue mass, which is the Dead Sea, the Sea of Salt. And Jerusalem is right here. All, you know, all roads are leading into Jerusalem here. Now, the Genesis account said that Abram chased Lot's kidnapper, King Ketalomer, all the way up to Damascus. Look how far he went. He chased him all the way up here. Damascus is uh, way up there in the corner. That's how far he went. Okay. Now, it says that Melchizedek came out and met Abram at Hebron okay which is here that's 20 miles from Jerusalem it says he met I'm sorry Abram lived at Hebron he didn't meet him at Hebron Abram lived at Hebron so obviously Abram hadn't gotten home yet right if Melchizedek came out to bring him refreshment on his way home so Abram was coming from Damascus way up there he traveled all the way down here and somewhere in here around in the Jerusalem area would presumably be the king's valley where they met and not only did Melchizedek meet him but the king of Sodom met him remember the king that Sodom was where Lot lived and Sodom had been down here Okay, so it's at the very bottom of the Dead Sea so the king of Sodom would have been traveling north Abram traveling south and they all three met and and I believe that's very strong evidence that they met in the vicinity of jerusalem which was only about 20 miles from hebron so you can see that the relative scale that's about 20 miles i i'm going to give you what i think is the strongest evidence that jerusalem is salem and that's actually in the bible in psalm 76 verse 1 and 2 god is renowned in judah in israel his name is great his tent is in salem his dwelling place in zion so here Salem is used as a synonym for Zion which is also used as a synonym for Jerusalem right so I think that gives pretty definitive proof that Salem is Jerusalem and in case that's not enough for you there is an account outside of the Bible by the historian Josephus in his work entitled The Jewish War there's a a part in book four near somewhere near section 420 my copy of the thing doesn't have the the lines marked every single line, but the closest marker was at marker 420. And he said, Jerusalem's original founder was a prince of Canaan. Canaan is like Palestine. A prince of Canaan called Melchizedek or righteous king. For such indeed he was. He was the first priest of God and the first to build the temple. He named the city of Jerusalem, which was previously called Solima presumably Salem right? okay um, And the temple that's being referred to there cannot be any of the temples that we're familiar with because they came much much later after the Israelites even existed I mean this is this account in Genesis is way before the Israelites even in- existed. We're just talking about Abraham at this point. So whatever temple Melchizedek built had to have been a precursor to any temple that the Israelites built so to me all of that taken together pretty much nails it I, I think that that definitely puts it in Jerusalem so just like Josephus the writer of Hebrews places emphasis on the meaning of Melchizedek, Melchizedek's name and the fact that he was also king of Salem do you see where, where it said, Josephus said Melchizedek or righteous king we looked last week to see that that's what his name actually meant If you go, that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews points out next in verse 2. Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem, which was actually what he was king of. He was king of Salem, king of Jerusalem, means king of peace. So here, for the first time, in Genesis 14, we see righteousness and peace meeting in one person does that ring a bell for you it should look at isaiah 9 6 through 7 for unto us a child is born to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and peace There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And again in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. And then in Psalm 85, 9 and 10, Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. So you see, in the meeting of righteousness and peace, in the person of Melchizedek, we see a foreshadowing of Christ. All of those passages that we just read about were passages about Christ, about the Messiah. And that's an important concept as well, because Melchizedek foreshadows Christ as our high priest and our king. But there was another person in scripture who foreshadowed Christ. And that person was Adam. Adam foreshadowed Christ as man. And of course, Adam was a dismal failure, all right? But look what Paul says about him in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 47. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, that would be Christ, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, or the, the fleshly. And after that, the spiritual The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. And you find several places in scripture where Christ is foreshadowed in a person. In Adam, in Moses, we've talked about some of the foreshadowing in Moses. And in Melchizedek as our high priest and king. So if we study these foreshadowed people, we can understand more about christ because they're giving us a picture of him all right that's why the whole that's why they wrote all this stuff down so there wasn't any other good reason to write it down and that's exactly what the writer of hebrews does next in verse three without father or mother without genealogy without beginning of days or end of life resembling the son of god he melchizedek remains a priest forever What a bizarre verse, right? How bizarre. It it reiterates that Melchizedek is not Christ, but that he resembles the Son of God, right? See that word? The Greek here for resembles means to assimilate closely or to be made like the Son of God, okay? Some commentators explain this whole first part of the verse where it says without father or mother and without genealogy, By saying, well, what it really means is that his genealogy isn't recorded in scripture. Okay. Well, I think that's a case of trying to fit Cinderella's shoe on the ugly stepsister. Okay. (laughs) And, you know, it makes it fit. So I'm going to explain it to you how I think. It works, all right? And if what I say sounds like it's out in left field, well, just forget it, okay? And think what you want to think on this. But I'm going to tell you what I think. So first off, anytime time in the Old Testament that there is any important figure, they always give us his genealogy. You usually know who his father was, usually who his mother was. You can usually trace him all the way back to Adam and all the way down to Christ, Okay? I mean there's just the, the old te- that's one of the reasons people don't read the Old Testament. It's cuz it's full of those genealogies, right? So, I think we need to pay attention to the fact that here we have an extremely important figure spiritually speaking and there it, it's a person as important as Adam yet we have absolutely nothing about his genealogy. I agree with the writer of Hebrews that the correct conclusion is that Melchizedek has no genealogy listed because he had no earthly father or mother. I think it means what it says. And if that's the case, he couldn't have been a man. So let me give you some attributes and let let me see if it rings any bells. If he couldn't be a man, Christ, and he couldn't be a man, what does that leave? an angel he had to be supernatural in the sense he's not human right and yet he takes on a human form when he's talking to Abram right that reminds that's how angels operate with us right could Melchizedek be an angel or even an archangel like Michael or Gabriel so I want to look at some of the evidence that points in this direction first there's his function remember that Melchizedek was high priest of God you remember the verse in Hebrews 1, verse 14 that says all angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We looked at that. We always think of angels from our point of view as messengers, but from God's point of view, they have another function. And we looked at the fact that the word used to describe angels in Hebrews 1, 14 is liturgicos, liturgical spirits. It, it means ministering. And in that same lesson, we looked at Revelation 5, 11 through 12, where thousands and thousands of angels encircle the throne of God offering praise and adoration. And if you look at both the Hebrew and the Greek word for angel, you can see what it means. In Hebrew, angel means messenger, definitely, a messenger of God. Also, prophet, priest, priest teacher, ambassador, king. That's all part of what the word angel means. In Greek, angel means messenger, but by implication, a pastor. Okay. So functionally, Melchizedek's role is consistent with the angelic role of ministering to God and to man. He is performing the kind of function that angels perform. What about the idea that Melchizedek had no beginning of days or end of life? Aren't angels created beings? Yes, they are. But look what the Bible says about when they were created. First, we have to back up and remember some of the other titles for angels. Okay, Because you know how Christ called himself son of man. People have other titles. And we need to look at at what angels were called because they do, as a group, have other titles. And they're often referred to in the Bible as the host of heaven. I didn't even list any references for that because we went over that in detail in Revelation. But you call, see them called the hosts of heaven all the time, all right? Also remember that among the angels are some very special, high-ranking angels that we call archangels, right? And in the Bible, those special angels are typically called princes, that's, a reference for that would be in Daniel 12.1 where the archangel Michael is referred to as the prince of Israel. In the context of angels being part of the host of heaven, they are also sometimes called morning stars. Jesus calls himself the bright morning star in Revelation 22.16. Let's look at that. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. And both Jesus in Revelation 2.28 and Peter in 2 Peter 1.19 say that in the last day, Jesus will give us the morning star, which is himself. Okay. But the Bible makes it clear there are other morning stars. In Isaiah 14, the king of Babylon is called a morning star. Look at Isaiah fourteen, twelve through 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Well, we know from our study of Revelation that in the end time, Babylon is the capital of evil, right? It's Satan's seat. And it is from here that the Antichrist bases his operations during the tribulation. Well, obviously, there is a physical human king of Babylon, but the spiritual king of Babylon can be none other than Satan himself. Okay? Just like the Archangel Michael was the prince over Israel, Satan is the spiritual prince over Babylon. Okay? From a biblical perspective, anyway, and I think maybe literally. So here we see that the satan the spiritual king of babylon was originally created as a morning star one of the archangels with great power and a geographical responsibility around the babylonian area like the angels of greece and persia who are also mentioned in the book of daniel so that brings us back to how we know when angels were created and that is in job chapter 38 verses 4 through 9 and this is God talking to Job at the very end. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its counterstone, cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling bland. You see, there are many morning stars. It's plural. And they are called sons of God. That's another name for them. Okay. They were there at the foundation of the earth. And we know that through Jesus all things were created and that he is the first and foremost morning star. But there are other morning stars and they were present at creation. They sang for joy when we were created. They were created before us. And certainly by human reckoning they have no beginning of days before the, because they were created before there was such a thing as morning or evening, day or night. They were created when darkness still hovered over the face of the deep. Now, here's my my disclaimer here. Lest you get confused, listen carefully. I want to make sure you understand I am not suggesting that Jesus is an angel. Okay? It just implies that just like he is fully human and is son of man, he is also fully spiritual. And like the angels, he takes on the name Son of God. Okay? He is much higher than any man or angel. He alone is begotten of God, the very essence of God, and there is no other Christ but Jesus. Okay? We're just talking here about archangels, which are, you know, obviously stepped down, right? But they are also in Scripture called sons of God, and there are other places where they're called that. So, these other... morning stars these angelic ministering spirits and their characteristics seem to me to fit melchizedek perfectly he is a priest he is also a minister right he's a king with a geographic responsibility around jerusalem it makes sense to me that the greatest of the archangels would be given response spiritual responsibility for the city of jerusalem okay it makes sense to me that he would be a ministering spirit, a priest continually, and it makes sense then, when you think of it like this, that he would be a forerunner of Christ, our priest and king, just like Adam was a forerunner of Christ as man. So it seems to me no stretch at all to understand that Christ would be priest and king in the order of Melchizedek, but far, far exceeding him. Christ. If you look at it, Christ is the fulfillment of the blessing that was intended for us in Melchizedek. Just as Christ is the fulfillment of the blessing that was intended for us in Adam. I don't think we have to be afraid at all of the statement that Melchizedek had no mother or father or beginning or ending of days. I think that's perfectly reasonable. I think it has a scriptural basis and it ties in perfectly with God's pattern of giving us very clear foreshadowing of Christ throughout the entire Old Testament. So if you're uncomfortable with that analysis and interpretation, that's okay. Lots of people, lots of people believe Melchizedek was a vision of Christ himself okay a Christophany I think the writer of Hebrews says he resembled Christ not that he was Christ but a lot of people see it Melchizedek as Christ himself a lot of people take the beginning and ending of days things as not being literal but referring to just not having a genealogy recorded in scripture a lot of people agree with me that he was an angel there's no reason to get hung up about any of it because in the end the important thing is that we look at Melchizedek and understand more about Christ whether or not we ever nail down what type of being Melchizedek is so the writer of Hebrews goes on to point out that we can tell that Melchizedek is greater and more important than Abram, Abraham who was the patriarch of Israel God's chosen people look at verse 4 in Hebrews now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his choicest spoils. Now, that was long before the law. It was long before Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of his spoils, way before there ever was a law that required a tithe. So think about where that came from. The concept of giving a tenth of the best of your income to God was a concept that existed all the way back to the time of Abraham. Jacob, Abraham's grandson, also way before the law, also gave God a tithe of a tenth of all he had. That's in Genesis 28:22. And this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house, and of all that thou dost give me, I will surely give a tenth of. To the way before the law. That was more than five hundred years before the giving of the law and the establishment of the Levitical priesthood. So think about this. If Jacob gave a tenth of everything he had to God, who did he give it to? There were no priests. I wonder if it was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. You know? Doesn't say. The Levitical priesthood and system of tithes doesn't get established until the law is given, and we can see that in Numbers 18, 20, and 21. Then the Lord said to Aaron, "'You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. And to the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance.'" In return for their service which they perform, the service in the tenth of meeting. And it goes on to say, I didn't put it all in here, but it goes on to say that out of the tithe that the 11 tribes give to the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Levites will give a tithe to Aaron, the high priest. A tithe is called in Scripture a tithe of the tithe. And it's an offering to the Lord given to the high priest. And in the detailed rules that are laid out in Leviticus 27, the tithe was set to be one-tenth. And that one-tenth was even carried over to the time of the kings. After they had finished wandering around and they had set up kings for themselves, in 2 Samuel 8.15, the Lord established that the people would owe their king one-tenth of their produce, one-tenth of their, from, of their produce from the land and from the livestock and even from their servants and that was of course didn't happen when they were in captivity but when they came out of captivity in the time of Nehemiah and set up temple worship again it was reestablished then and you can see that in Nehemiah 10 so for Abraham to give a tithe to Melchizedek means that as far as Abraham was concerned Melchizedek was a high priest of God. And this is where the writer of Hebrews zings it to the Hebrews Christians. He's about to knock down a big, big pillar of Jewish tradition, starting in verse 4. Just think how great he was that he's talking about Melchizedek. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their kindred, even though their kindred are descended from Abraham. This man, however, Melchizedek, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Ouch. Remember how sacrosanct the priesthood was to the Jews and how it had to be a Levite? Remember that? Well, Levi hadn't even been invented yet when this thing with Abraham and Melchizedek came along. Levi, Levi was a descendant of Abraham. Remember the story that we read of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and how they were out of the, another tribe and they coveted the power of the tribe of Levites and they ended up getting swallowed up by the earth. I mean, it was like a really big deal. That only Levites could be priests, and there's even a story in the Second Chronicles about a king of Judah. And remember, Judah—this would have been one of the ancestors of Christ, one of one of the lineage of Christ—that kind of a, a person who tries to seize the priesthood in Second Chronicles 26, 16 through 19. Now, after King Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Azariah the priest, with eighty other courageous priests of the Lord, followed him in. And they confronted King Uzziah and said, It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful. And you will not be honored by the Lord God. Uzziah who had a censer in his hand ready to burn incense, became angry. And while he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. Yikes. Okay, so every example in scripture we have of somebody trying to do the Levitical priesthood thing, whether it's Uzziah or, you know, those three guys back in, while they were wandering in the in the wilderness, they're all punished horribly immediately. But here in the Old Testament, in the very Torah itself, is a record of a indisputable high, high priest of God who is not a Levite, and who is receiving tithes from Abraham himself. And the question the writer of Hebrews is trying to raise in the Jewish mind is, can it be? That there's a priesthood greater than that of Aaron's. Hebrews verses 7 and 8. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by those who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. I mean, common sense just tells you that whoever is lesser is blessed by whoever is greater. The greater guy blesses the lesser guy. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater than Aaron because Melchizedek blessed Aaron. Yet even more, the Levites who collect the tithes from Israel are mortal men and die. But Melchizedek who collected the tithe from Abraham does not die. Okay, so you can see where he's going with this. Look at verse 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi who collects the tenth under the law paid the tenth to Melchizedek through Abraham because Melchizedek met Abraham when that happened Levi was still in the body of his ancestor okay kind of convoluted thinking but it's basically saying since since Levi was nothing but a twinkle in Abraham's eye when when Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek Levi was giving a tithe to him as well so that Puts a nail in it. Melchizedek is clearly established as having a priesthood that far outranks that of the Levites. So where is the writer of Hebrews going with this? He's going to Christ. Verses 11 and 12. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established by that priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Because remember, that was prophesied that the Messiah would be a priest in, forever in the order of Melchizedek back in Psalms. That's where that was prophesied. So the writer of Hebrews is saying now, if the, if the Levitical priesthood was sufficient, why was there a need for a high priest to come from the order of Melchizedek? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. And here's where our understanding of the basic elementary teachings about various baptisms helps. Because we know that baptism into Moses and baptism into Christ both represented a new community of believers with a new purpose, a new calling, and new leadership. Therefore, it makes sense that the law governing the community that was baptized into Moses would need to be changed and replaced When the community was baptized into Christ. Okay. Because you have a different leader. It's all new rules now. Okay. And the word in verse 12. For changed. Where it says the law must be changed. The word in Greek means transposition. Disestablishment. It literally means removing the old law. And completely replacing it with a new one. Okay. It's not an evolution of it. It's not a tweaking of it. It's out with the old, in with the new. In verse 11, if perfection could have been attained, that's the same word that we looked at before, where perfection means completion, achievement of the goal. Okay? So if the law could have achieved the purpose for which it was intended, it wouldn't have to be replaced. The old law and the priesthood was not bad. It was very good. It convicted man of his sins and gave him a way to be cleansed of his sins, but it couldn't achieve the ultimate goal of being able to change the inner man. It did not transform the heart. Man still could not walk with God in the really close fellowship that God desired. Man could not live up to the law. We were just too human. So, God sent Jesus, and with Jesus came the need to replace the old law. And when the old law was replaced, it was replaced with something better. There was no longer any need for the Levitical priests. Instead, a new leader was established, a new priesthood. The priesthood of Christ is not a human priesthood in the order of Aaron, It's not a priesthood of men subject to death. It is a spiritual, eternal priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. And that's why it's okay that Jesus is our high priest, even though he didn't descend from Levi. Continue in verse 13. He's going to say more about this. He of whom these things are said, that would be Jesus, belonged to a different tribe than Levi. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So here's the writer reminding the Hebrew Christians the Old Testament scripture clearly prophesied the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. Okay, so he's pulling two completely different messianic prophecies from two places in the Old Testament and saying, Look guys, did you ever notice That the Messiah is from the tribe of Judah and the Messiah is to be our priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's putting those together in a way they may not have thought about before. Uh, He goes on. Let's look at verse 15. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry. But on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What he's saying there is that we can be even more sure the old law has been replaced when we realize we've been given a Messiah who is a priest from an order that is older and more exalted than the order of Aaron. Our Messiah is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, and as such, he's a priest forever. He's a priest with the power of an indestructible life. Continue in verse 18. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Now, I think modern day Christians fall into the same trap the Hebrew Christians were falling into. Let me ask you a question. Does the old law apply to us? okay and i got a lot of negative head shakes side to side and a comment in the way in a way it does but not really okay so let's drill down in the law what about the 10 commandments do the 10 commandments apply to us well they do got a lot of up and down head nods wrong so i think that they do in the sense that they are there as a as an example okay they're there there is an example yeah, okay advice as a guide okay. Yeah. alright let me, let me tell you the spin I put on it this is, this is how I see it and, and we may be saying the same thing but I think if anybody asks you do the ten commandments apply to you the answer has to be no an emphatic no and here's why I think that ok you may have heard the teaching that out of the law moral law still applies and sacrificial law no longer applies a lot of denominations teach that, okay? So they say, what they're saying is, you know, you don't have to, you know, worry about eating ham or bacon. But you do have to worry about thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill And You are subject to that part of the law that is, quote, a moral law. And that's what I'm hearing you guys saying. Okay, that answer is no, okay? And here's why. We are not supposed to be bound by the old law anymore. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Look at Romans 7, verse 1 through 6. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So why did Jesus say what he did about the law? Remember what he said in Matthew 5, 17? Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Seems contradictory, doesn't it? Look closely at what Jesus says. He said the requirements of the law will not pass away until all is accomplished. Jesus came to do exactly what the law had been unable to do. You see, Jesus came to actually make us holy. Okay, The law showed us that we needed to be holy and gave us regulations for how to become holy, but we couldn't do it and Jesus came to actually make us holy to cleanse and change the inner man to rescue us out of death and into life. And it was that was always the desire of God. That was the reason the law was given, but the law could not reach its goal. Jesus was the new way and the only way the goal could be accomplished. Did the goal change? No. God has always always wanted to bless us and draw us close to him in fellowship. Could the law do this? No. Therefore, Jesus had to change the method by which God's goal was accomplished. He had to take us out from under the law and put us into grace. Was the law bad? No. Did the goal of the law change? No. Did any of the prophecies in the Old Testament become invalid by the coming of Christ? No. But the path very definitely changed. Jesus said, The law could be summed up in just a few words, Matthew twenty two, thirty-six through forty. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The requirements of the law have not changed, have they? Under grace and under the leadership of Christ, we are certainly called to love the Lord our God with our entire being and to love our fellow man as well as we love ourselves. That is our calling as Christians. Paul puts it very well in Romans 8, 2 through 4. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do... Weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, through Jesus, the requirements of the law have already been completely fulfilled in us. We are no longer subject to any of the law, even the Ten Commandments. Instead, we are subject to the Holy Spirit. We are subject to a higher standard than the law. Yes, but I'm talking about Christians. I'm talking as a spirit-filled believer. Are you subject to the Ten Commandments? No, you are subject to the Holy Spirit, which is a higher standard. Yeah, and I, I am only asking from the Christian perspective, yeah. okay, as a spirit-filled believer. Not even a think yeah. I'm a Christian person who, yeah. you know, who really isn't, but, but from a point of someone who is led by the Spirit, that's what we're talking about. Look at Matthew five twenty through 22. This is what Jesus says. Here is what I tell you. You must be more godly than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. If you are not, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard what was said to people who lived long ago. They were told, do not commit murder. Anyone who murders will be judged for it. But here is what I tell you. Do not be angry with your brother. Anyone who is angry with his brother will be judged. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. How's that for a higher standard? So why is our higher standard? Why is our standard higher? (laughs) Why is our standard higher? It's because we have the Holy Spirit to guide us and teach us truth. We no longer need specific regulations for specific circumstances. And it's much better. You cannot legislate honesty. You can only legislate to contain dishonesty, right, if you think about it. Okay? And that is the difference between the law and the Spirit. Okay? We can apply, we as being led by the Spirit can apply the principle, truth, with a capital T, to any situation. Therefore, we can no longer escape through a loophole in the law, which the Pharisees loved to do, right? We have that, that is not available to us anymore. You see, the law forgot to legislate that you should treat your brother with respect. It just said you shouldn't murder him. okay. And so the Pharisees were just pouring through that little loophole, but we don't have that available to us because we are subject to the Spirit. And the only way that we can be Holy, which is what Jesus is describing. Somebody who is not angry with his brother, you know. How unattainable is that? The only way that we can attain that is to cast ourselves entirely on his mercy, right? With every fiber of our being. There is no other way to do it than to absolutely admit that we can't do it and lay down and say, Lord, you do it for me. And then let him do it. Look at verse 19 in Hebrews. Hebrews. The law didn't make anything perfect. Now a better hope has been given to us, and that hope brings us near to God. And here's where the writer of Hebrews makes his final point in his argument that the priesthood of Christ far exceeds the priesthood of the Levites, beginning in verse 20. The change of priests was made with an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But Jesus became a priest with an oath. So, Basically, it's saying that as Levites lived and died and lived and died, they became priests without any special oath from God happening. Okay? But Jesus became a priest with a oath from God. God said to him, the Lord has taken an oath and made a promise. He will not change his mind. He has said, you are a priest forever. And because of that oath, Jesus makes the promise of a better covenant certain. It's interesting, I think, to note the very few times in the Bible that God actually emphasizes a promise with an oath. It's only a handful of times. One was when Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. We read that last week. And, it, and, and God said, I am taking an oath in my own name. I will bless you because of what you have done, announces the Lord. You have not held back your son, your only son. That's in Genesis 22. Okay? Okay. The second time the Lord made an oath was when the Israelites refused to enter the promised land the first time. In Deuteronomy 1, and 35, the Lord heard what you said, so he became angry. He took an oath and made a promise. He said, I promised to give this good land to your people long ago, but not one of you evil men who are alive today will see it. That's the Lord's second oath. The third time the Lord made an oath was when Moses took God's glory for himself in front of the Israelites. It's in Deuteronomy 4.21. And remember that that particular incident was the reason Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. This was a very big deal. And at the time, the Lord said, The Lord was angry with me because of what you did. He took an oath that he would never let me go across the Jordan River. He promised that I would never enter that good land. It's the land the Lord your God is giving you as your own. The fourth time the Lord made an oath was when the second generation of Israelites finally did enter the promised land after the whole first generation died off. In Deuteronomy 29:12 through 15, you are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath. Okay? The fifth time was when the Lord made an oath that David's throne would be established forever. Psalm 132, 11 and 12. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. Five times. You know what the sixth time was? In Psalm 110, verse 4, when the Lord has taken an oath and made a promise, he will not change his mind, he has said, You, Messiah, are a priest forever, just like Melchizedek. Okay? That's that's all the times that I know of. That's six, is that six? One, two, three, four, five, six. Six oaths in the entire history of Israel, and all of them were huge, big deal occasions, right? Those were great big moments in their history. And one of those oaths was when the Lord made Christ a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. No wonder the writer of Hebrews pointed out that incident as being extremely significant. It is a new oath, the very establishment of a new covenant, a new promise. And now the writer summarizes his points. We'll end the class by reading to the end of the chapter, starting in verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike other pride priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the oath which came after the law The Son who has been made perfect forever.